Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Fremantle Press podcast. Today we're here with Belinda Hermuan, who is one of 10 authors longlisted for the Fogarty Literary Award for Western Australian authors aged 18 to 35. Belinda's short fiction has appeared in Pigeon Pages, Flock, Split, Lip, Westerly and Going Down Swinging. In 2018, she was mentored by author Laurie Steed as part of the Centre for Stories Indian Ocean Mentoring Project. Belinda has also served on the committee for the Australian Short Story Festival, worked for Writing WA and is an alumnus of both the Winter Tangerine Summer Workshop and Parsons School of Design Summer School in New York. Belinda, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Claire. Now, you're one of just a couple of authors who sent us a collection of short stories. Yes. It's called S to Z. Tell us about your manuscript. Uh, it's a bit different to anything probably everyone is used to. So it's actually S to Z, and I'll explain why. Uh, it's a collection of 19 short stories split into two halves, uh, and but all the stories explore in some way how some of us may have a fancy education, but sometimes you need more than book smarts. So in a lot of these stories, the characters are having to grapple with the idea of, oh, okay, this is not something you can learn from a textbook or a lecture. Uh, I'm going to need some street smarts to confront this challenging or surprising situation. So, uh, for example, a theologian is faced with the mystical, a scientist has a crisis of faith, an Asian-Australian woman realises she's misremembered a racist ghost. Uh, a salesperson knows the game is rigged. Uh, an artist doesn't want to take a closer look. So in all of these stories, no matter the state or the country, um, and no matter the language that's used, uh, we're all trying to navigate the path to truth. So I guess the example I use in terms of why it's Z, Z because um, Americans say Z and they get a bit, you know, when you write a word at ha and you're using the S instead of, they notice it straight away and they forget that they weren't the first ones to invent English. So <laughs> I know um, anyone I know from England is just like, we invented it. It's an S. Uh, but it's one of those cultural things that I think was, you know, always thought was quite interesting. So, um, but I also like the th idea that S to Z means it's not a complete A to Z travel guide. It's just a glimpse into these stories. Um, and you know, S can stand for many things. It can stand for school, science, salt, um, store, sacrament, stone, scheme. And when I thought about it, how do you turn an S, the letter, into a Z? And you'd have to flip it and then pull out its corners until uh, new angles are created, which is exactly what I guess this, I'm trying to do with these stories. And a lot of them echo into each other. And you may feel, oh, this one is like that other one in the other section, but also picks up on a few other um, motifs or aspects in other ones. So it's not exactly the same. Hmm. So take us into your process. When you when you start, you're going to write a short, short story mm. Um, what is it that inspires you? What sparks sparks mm. the short story for you? Well, usually it's just a plot. I have a photographic memory, so sometimes it's just the image of something or that sensory experience of standing in a shop. So, for example, I was standing in Pottery Barn on Hay Street and just seeing all these men exasperated because all the women had dragged them in there. And that's actually – when I. I try to hear the story coming to me as I'm picturing it. Uh, it didn't quite work when I tried to place it in Perth. So I thought, where else have I been? Or, you know, 
experienced something similar to, and that one turned into Mall of America and a Williams Sonoma store. Uh, so uh, yeah, I just get this one snippet of something I've heard. Um, uh, the Mickey, which is set in Queensland, that is actually based on real life microaggressions, um, just straight up racism that um, I've experienced in Perth. But when I tried to write it in Perth, it didn't quite work, I think, because it was too close. So um, I, I use my photographic memory and go, what have I seen when I, you know, through my travels? Um, I just always remember I only ever took one creative writing unit uh, in my arts degree. And I just happened to have TAG Hungerford winner Brenda Walker. And when we were workshopping the short story, I'd randomly written, uh, and everyone else was enjoying it. It was about, I think, two Catholic school kids in Boston and they were liking sort of the banter and some of the imagery. But Brenda was less impressed and I remember two things. The first was uh, some of these descriptions are cliched. I think I had described a library as labyrinthine. And the second was there is no reason why this story isn't set in Perth. And it was the first time I went, oh, I guess... I actually, I guess she was right. But when a few of us came out of the workshop, my classmates said, oh, but no one wants to read a story in Perth. And that experience has haunted me for years. And you know, I can't remember how, must be 14 years or something. So uh, just that idea of actually where is the best place for this story, which city really speaks to the idea, um, the theme, the conflict. Um, and I hope um, you know, if, ever, if Brenda ever reads my work, the, the lead story is actually in Perth and it has, you know, a bit of, it has the, the kids and it mm-hmm. has um, sort of magical elements to say, oh, okay, yeah, I've learnt all this time. You can make a story at home. Uh, just as exciting as, an, as a story in New York. Mm. Mm. So you're writing short fiction, mm. you're writing fiction from Perth and set in Perth mm. and you're writing from a perspective that um, may not be as well represented mm. as um, other other perspectives in Australia. Mm-hmm. Mm. What would you say to that? Is there enough diverse publishing in Australia? Uh, I think there's a danger of tokenising. Uh, so, you know, already posited as the other, which actually can be an advantage in some sense because even, you know, you can then look at the status quo from a different angle. But because there are not that many, uh, I guess, publishing outlets in, in Australia in general, I think a lot of people think they're helping by having special call-outs or um, like look, showcasing the Asian or Australian or the person of colour voice. Uh, but if there's no way to translate uh, that help into getting these stories competitive in the mainstream, then all you're really doing is creating a separate lane the special affirmative action lane of, oh, we gave you a chance to have your story in that, um, you know, special edition for this particular um, race or ethnicity or cultural background. What are you complaining about? So um, that's my main concern is, yes, you may be helping in that way by um, giving an opportunity to um, underrepresented voices, but what are you doing to upskill or, you know, there is that inherent privilege in, um, where a lot of these people may not have access to mentors and courses. Uh, so that's something I worry about. And even then, I haven't thought about it to the extent other people have. So Rafif um, Ismail, who I met a couple of weeks ago, I think was published in Meet Me in the Intersection, 
she brought up that there are a lot of teenagers who want to tell stories, young writers who, you know, they, or, or people who just have a story in them and um, would be very excited to share it. But there are certain, you know, barriers to them being able to have that. So it kind of it's, it made me think a lot um, and, you know, that, yes, I went to a private school and I went to UWA, but not everyone had that opportunity. Uh, and so I'm able to tell my story, but there are kids in high school who may not think it's an option to go into writing. Mm. So, yeah, it's a lot of things to unpack um, in terms of the privilege and the gatekeeping, I mm. think. Mm. So we've talked about special streams mm. and we've talked about younger people mm. writing. Mm. So as a long listee of the Fogarty Literary Award, what does that mean to you? Um, how do you feel this might help you as a writer and mm. other fellow writers mm. in Western Australia? Well, I think just, I guess, from the the interest that I'm not sure any of us expected that the 64 manuscripts came in is there are a lot of people who just, they love writing, they love reading, but it's often, mis- uh, you know, it's, it's, it's um, maligned as a really um, not attractive path because it may not lead to riches or fame or fortune um, or even just a stable income. And we all know there's sort of ASA figures on the average annual income for, for an author. Uh, so I think uh, in, in, the, in the Fogarty family, investing in this as they have with, you know, other initiatives as of, the, you know, the UW scholarships or the Coded Dojo and all those, it's saying, no, we do want to hear you. Um, and it is something that you shouldn't just pack away. Um, and I guess the other thing, what what it means for me as a long listee is that I had just been um, speaking to a couple of my um, contemporaries in other states about how there's less and less of a chance to get published in Australia, even for short fiction or for longer form. It's, you know, we just don't have the critical mass of Britain and the United States. So a lot of people who have been published in certain journals go, well, I've now maxed out my market because if your style doesn't fit um uh, you know, say Southerly or Island or Mianjin or the call out from Griffith Review uh, or KYD is not exactly what you've got at this time. Where do you send your work? So I'd actually been spending a couple months since my last piece was published in the States in January thinking, well, where do I, you know, do you just commit to sending work elsewhere and forgetting the home stories, which is really sad because a lot of them, you know, you, this, this is something you came up with and it's a universe that you wanted to to show people. Uh, so, you know, putting this together, it's saying actually you can have these, these stories do matter. Um, and I think that's, as I was ordering that first section in um, the nine Australian stories, uh, it wasn't deliberate, but I realised that the way I, I sort of did it was we start off in Perth and we may travel somewhere else in the Eastern States, but we keep coming back to WA. So, you know, sort of that message, I think, um, to WA young writers that, yes, okay, everyone says the traditional centre of publishing, Melbourne, Sydney, etc. cetera, uh, but just because we're over here doesn't mean that your your dream or your goal uh, is not worth investing in. Mm. Mm. And you mentioned sending material to the US. Mm. Do you are you able to get Australian stories published in the US or Western Australian stories published there, or do mm. you have to kind of filter what what you send them? Oh well, Catherine with an A, which is the lead story, actually, um, that was my first attempt at really going. You know, I really want to try something a bit out of the box, and I knew I wouldn't be able to place that story 
in Australia, and it actually was pick up, picked up by Typishly, which is a um, you know a, a sort of a, a fledgling um, US journal. And John, the editor, he's like, well, no, I really enjoyed the story, and he wanted to publish it. So uh, that was a good start. But then I think I was quite conscious of there's a different style in terms of short story writing between the states and here. They tend to um, uh, have narratives that are a bit more layered and complicated, not complicated in terms of, oh, they're, you know, more high and mighty, uh, but it's, yeah, so they, you know, would have maybe a lot of people would come out of MFAs studying um, a lot of their traditional authors and narratives that go on for 5,000 words, 6,000 words, uh, whereas here in Australia, most of the call-outs are for 2,000, 3,000 words, and we may read an American piece and go, where are they going with this? Or there's way too much detail. They may read an Australian piece and go, where's all the extra detail in the background? It's too, you know, it's like we're more like a zip line, I feel. We just go, we're starting at this point and we're barreling down. You may see other things on the way, but we're, we're going from, you know, from A to B, whereas Americans tend to circle around and around and go, and then like, oh, you landed up here and I'm not sure if you, you thought you were going to, um, but that's where it is. So I went, well, in order to maximise, what I wanted to do was to just learn, I think. So I did start reading a lot more American fiction to see maybe what maybe their editors would like. But I haven't really found a special formula because Bound in Splitlet was my second um, American story. But then, you know, after that was Vanishing Point and Flock and that was quite, that was only 2,200 words. So uh, there is no necessary secret. But I think it was just either the universal truth or that you were just going for it, I suppose. I'm not sure what, um, what, they, what they saw in it. But I think what... They, the advantages and why, you know, a lot of um, sort of you know, emerging writers may go else. It's just that, you know, you may send out 10, uh, send out your piece to 10 journals in the States or, or the UK and if you strike out, you can just send them out to another 10. In Australia, there probably is only about 10 to 15. Mm. Um, so um, I guess Stone Fruit, which was published in Pigeon Pages, their editor, Ashley, the fishing editor, Ashley, she spent four months working with me on that piece, whereas I don't think an Australian editor would have time to do that. Mm. So um, I'm not sure if I've answered the question, but I just found that it was, you know, a lot very, I'm really, I'm benefiting from the fact that they have like 290 million people <laughs> who, can, who can help you and build community. So, and the Winter Tangerine Workshop was the first time um, that I had really tried to engage with ideas of race and ethnicity. Um, and, you know, in my working group, there were um, Asian Americans um, and Latina um, Americans, um, and Black Americans, oh, sorry, African Americans. And um, it was just having that another perspective, but that doesn't mean I couldn't get it here. It's just that it was just more readily accessible. So it, I guess in coming out of that 2018, when I had, I guess, such a vibrant sort of um, um community online uh it, you know and working with laurie stead and be like oh there, there is help in perth there are there is interest here um so yeah it's yeah. Sort of, yeah and i think you actually interesting. yeah mm. i think you actually are one of the people that provide a lot of help for your fellow i try writers. to because it's yeah. hard and so i really only got involved in the sector in say 2016 and maybe i just went full you know, just went full in because I have a really supportive employer uh, who was like, if that's what you also is, one of your passions, just go ahead and, and do it. So in getting out there and meeting a lot of people, 
Um, I guess that, that's why it was and before I was saying to Claire, oh my, I can't believe that the 40th anniversary of free, it was only a couple of years ago, but it feels like a long time. But it's interesting, no matter where I go travel in Perth, there are people who are just eager for help and for community. And um, if they don't live in exactly the right suburb, they may be quite a drive from the local writer's centre mm. or to like-minded people in their genre. So I think it's important and to give back. And I think Perth writers are very good at giving back because they know how hard it can be. You can't just sign up to a, um, a workshop in Melbourne and drive over. Um, well, you can. Well, you can. But, um, but maybe you want to combine it with, you know, when the Dockers <laughs> or the West Coast Eagles. I get car sick after so 30 like minutes. Double, <laughs> double your fun or. Yeah. yeah. But do your own literary tour. You know, you could sign up and you're trying to get into Varuna and then maybe go to some more Sydney things. Or yeah, go perhaps. To, you yeah. know, go to the Queensland Writer Centre or something. Or the Harry but, Potter. Yeah. Extravaganza. Um, yeah. Make a sort of literary tourism. Um, so because that's not readily available, well, you know, we'll help each other out. That's true. Mm. And shout out to uh, your very helpful employer. Who is it? Corpus Christi College. Go Corpus Christi. Um, Thanks very much. We all need we'll supportive probably be the, employers. The ones listening to this, but and also to the kids who are also great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, you've prepared a reading for us. Yes. Um, Can you take us through that? As I've chosen Bound mainly because it was something a bit different and after I, so I originally sort of shared it on Facebook after it was published and a few people were like, oh, yay, Belle, good for you. And like, um, when I'm, look, my friends are very, very supportive. But uh, towards the end of the year, I think it was December, um, Entropy magazine in the States listed it as one of their top online short stories um, oh, alongside stories in like The New Yorker and Bomb and Granter and that, which, and I was like, what, are you serious? But after I sort of then went, oh, okay, this has been recognised, then I had people who I hadn't spoken to in 10 years, 15 years, or who just, you know, they just came forward and go, Belle, I don't usually read short stories, but I really enjoyed this one. Or I was at work and I was, you know, the fact that um, people stopped and, you know, really enjoyed reading. I think think in these days everyone, it's, it's so easy, and I do it too. You go home, you know, Yes, there are books there and you could read a novel or you could just switch on Netflix um, and just mindlessly go through your, your queue or see what's on there. Um, and I think, yeah, bringing the joy of reading back um, because really that's what's propping up the whole publishing industry. If it's only writers buying, buying writers, then we're not going to get very far. So I think that what this piece sort of meant to me is, oh, people were sort of reminded Um so, yeah, I did uh, practice it in an Australian accent and it sounded really weird. So I will put on a light, L-I-T-E sort of American accent. I hope, Excellent. I hope that will not scare the people in America. <laughs> but it just sounded strange otherwise, that's all. Yeah. Go for it okay. when you're ready. <laughs> so this is from Bound, um, originally published in Split Lip Magazine. 17. A fortune teller told me I had drowned myself in a previous life in ancient China. Apparently my parents had arranged for me to marry a rich but old government official, and in absolute protest, my past self found a fast-moving river and jumped in, defiantly thinking, don't you tell me what to do, as I succumbed to the cold torrents. This final act in that life, the fortune teller said, etched itself into my soul for me to carry the trauma for all reincarnations. My friend Jessica was sitting next to me at the time, translating, 
She nudged me after explaining that part and said, eyebrows raised, No wonder you have such a problem with authority. I regarded the fortune teller from across a small glass table. I could see through the crocheted tablecloth down to her shoes. She was wearing gym socks with Adidas slides and a surprise considering her elegant floral chongsam and neat bun of white hair held by a jade pin. Then again, she could wear whatever she wanted. This apartment, which sat above a herbal apothecary here in Chinatown, was her home. When the fortune teller looked me in the eye, she at least did it without the pity that many other Chinese offered when they were told I could only speak English. She spoke in even tones to Jessica, who then relayed the information to me with a lot more inflection, so entertained was she by my fate. Oh, this is great. She says your cousin has been following you for eons. She clapped her hands together, giggling. He doesn't even like me, I replied, struggling to suppress my irritation. So much of my life had been spent waiting for him to warm up to me. His indifference still stung, even though he was now a freshman at Yale. In fact, the distance made it worse, made his frostiness seem permanent. Jessica laughed. Doesn't like you? That's not what she says. Maybe this explains why he can speak Chinese so well. I rolled my eyes. He only learned because he went to some fancy prep school where that's encouraged for careers in international trade and finance. Despite her limited grasp of English, it seemed the fortune teller knew that Jessica had not told me the full story because she waved her hand as if to urge her to tell me more. You're destined for love in this lifetime, but you are stubborn and will feel like the choice has been made for you. So you'll run. Try not to run. Run? I attempted to rearrange my expression into one of impassiveness. I couldn't hold it. From where? The Bay Area? No, from him. From Jack. I turned from Jessica to the fortune teller. No offense, but that's beyond crazy. Are you sure you know what you're doing? By the time we left... It was after three. The rain had stopped, but the sky was still marbled gray. A cable car trundled past, managing the incline. On the sidewalk, I glanced at the apothecary window, unable to read the signs, presumably hawking herbal cures. I then caught sight of my reflection. For a second, before the fear took over, my reflection looked pleased. 35. When Jack called during my lunch break at work, I let it go to voicemail. I'd already heard about his broken engagement from my parents at dinner last night. Mom had chosen a well-reviewed raw restaurant in Haight-Ashbury. Dad and I took bets on how much we were going to regret our selections from the menu. Kale chips, cashew cheese, unseeded flatbread, lupin tempeh curry, zucchini pasta with walnut bolognese and beetroot ravioli with mock refried beans and nut sour cream. There were so many quotation marks that Dad and I began punctuating our conversation with air quotes, marking random details as hypotheticals. So it's a chapter 11 bankruptcy, and the list for discovery is 23 pages long, he explained deadpan. It's going to be a fun trial, and we're still in the pretrial stages, Mom intervened. Roger, quit with their quotation marks and don't make fun of the menu. The food is going to be amazing. Rita tried this place last week and swears by it. Does she? I asked, playing along. Would she swear her life on it? Dad burst out laughing. Mom cracked a smile and shook her head. I grinned at them both and basked in the amazingness of having a family, something I've always taken care to do, even now that I'm 35, 
because had it not been for these two, I would have grown up in an orphanage in the small Chinese city of Jiaozhou. Amy, I'm guessing you haven't heard about Jack? Mom asked. I shook my head. What about him? Dad leaned back in his chair. I got a call from your Uncle Kurt. It's happened again. Mom leaned forward in her chair. Jack ended up with Ashley. That's four fiancés he's had in 15 years, and he's dumped every one of them. I sat up straighter. Four is an unlucky number in Chinese culture, or so I'm told. By that logic, he'll have to find four more to get lucky again, Dad said. That's the lucky number, right? Eight? Hmm. I wasn't sure if it was the fermented beetroot or the activated nuts or the uncooked zucchini, but something was churning in my stomach. For the rest of the night, I kept thinking about discovery and what should be disclosed to the other side, like in a trial. Although I love working with mom at her luxury travel agency, there are times when I wonder how I would have done if I'd followed my dad and Uncle Curtin to law, and last night was one of those times. Was it fair that I hadn't told Jack what the fortune teller said to me 18 years ago? That was Belinda Hermelan in an American voice or American accent reading from S to Z, which I really loved. It was like having a whole new person beside me in the studio. Um, Belinda, will you be joining us for the announcement of the winner? I will be. I'll bring along the uh, hidden American in me, probably keep her alive by um, some American TV shows and some peanut butter and JJ <laughs> sandwiches. Peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, yeah. yum. I'm all for it. In fact, maybe that could be our catering That's option it. for the night. Um, well, I really look forward to seeing you there. Um, the event takes place at the ECU Spiegel Tent on Wednesday the 22nd of May. You can join us by grabbing you, our listeners, not just Belinda, but you, all of our listeners can join us by grabbing your free ticket from the Fremantle Press website at fremantlepress.com.au. Thanks for coming in, Melinda. <laughs> Thank you for having me.